Amen. Thank you, praise team. God is holy and almighty. It's one of my favorite hymns, Holy, Holy, Holy. We are blessed to be in His holy presence today, and it's only through the blood of Christ that we're able to enter into this sacred space this morning in full confidence before the mercy seat of God that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb. We're going to finish uh, this morning our June series on the greatness of our God as we go through these books of history in the Old Testament. I know the last couple days we've been in Job now, if you're following along in our, our reading plan. Job's one of my favorite books. And did you know that Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible? It was the, 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 the written, most scholars believe it was the earliest book that was written chronologically in the entire Bible. So it's a fascinating look into early relations with God Almighty and how Job was a, a righteous man uh, before God. But before we get into our next series in the New Testament in July, I, I want to finish uh, this morning in Nehemiah. Such an incredible story. One of my favorite books of the Bible, Nehemiah. I think uh, one of the reasons I love this book so much is because he's a hero. Nehemiah is a guy that some of the commentaries I read said he's just a steely, you know, firm, planted guy that you want to be like. You just want to emulate Nehemiah when you read this book. He's a, a true kind of superhero in the Bible that we can look to as a, as a prime example of how we should also strive to be. So just remember some context where we've been so far. We talked about how God called Abraham and, and made this people for himself, the Israelites, and they, they sinned and they went into slavery in Egypt, right? And then God miraculously delivered the uh, Israelites out of Egypt. They thrived in Egypt. They grew into this massive nation like God foretold them that they would. And he delivered them and they wandered into the, pro into the desert for 40 years and then finally went to the promised land. And then the kingdom came. You had the three kings in the united kingdom. You had Saul first, then David and Solomon, and then it split. You had Israel, then Judah, and then they, Israel got wiped out by the Assyrians in 722, and then 586, Judah in the south also got taken into captivity into Babylon. And that's where we kind of find ourselves in the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, is, is after the exiles have returned from Babylon back into Jerusalem. Remember, the Babylonians' strength was fading in the 6th century BC, and the, the mighty Persians came in and wiped out the Babylonians, and King Cyrus, the king of the Persians, said, go ahead, go back. I, I release you from bondage. Go back to Jerusalem. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah tell about three major waves of exiles that returned to Jerusalem. The first one was around the year 480 or so BC, and it was led by Zerubbabel, which is a, a fantastic name, again, Zerubbabel. And, <laughs> and he established the first thing that was most important, worship. He rebuilt the altar that was outside of the temple of God so they could begin offering sacrifices once again in Jerusalem on the temple mount to God Almighty. And then they laid the foundation for the temple. And then there was another wave that went back with Ezra. Ezra was a priest, but he was also a scholar in the law. And he read the book of the law out loud to the people, and they all worshiped and raised their hands as he read aloud from God's word to them. And then Ezra taught the people. Remember, he, he committed to, to studying God's word, and then he committed to doing God's word, to living it out. And then finally, he committed to teaching God's word, but only after he had studied it and lived it, then did he dare to teach it to others. So then about... 
13 years after Ezra came, and that was in, you know, 450 or so BC, 13 years after Ezra, the third major group goes from Babylon to, uh, back to Jerusalem, and they are led by a guy named Nehemiah. Okay, so let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1 of the book of Nehemiah. We're just going to kind of walk through the first two chapters of this incredible book. Nehemiah is an Israelite, but he's got a job in Persia as the cupbearer. You know what the cupbearer did? He, he brought the wine before the king. And the king at this point is, is no longer Cyrus, but a guy named Artaxerxes. And it was Nehemiah's job to, to bring the wine up to to Artaxerxes, and he would taste it to make sure that the wine was decent and that it, most importantly, that it wasn't poisoned. So if Nehemiah died, then the king wouldn't drink the wine. That was probably a pretty bad job if it, you know, if it ended up being poisoned. If it wasn't poisoned, not a bad job, I guess. But this is about the year 445 BC. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 1. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. That's sometime around November, December, which, so it's winter time, okay? In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, Susa was the winter capital of Persia. It was where the king lived during the winter months. That Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile. Remember last week we talked about how exile was brutal. You know, not everyone survived. In fact, only a remnant survived. It was, it's not just that they moved to another country. It's that they were brutally attacked and besieged by, by the Babylonians and then carried off as slaves, as property back into Babylon to, to be in forced servitude. And the ones who had survived the exile, keep going, gave this report concerning Jerusalem. And these men said to me, Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So these men had come back to Babylon, which is now Persia, and they'd given this news to Nehemiah. And they, what they were saying is that the capital city of God's promised land, the place where God's holiness was to dwell specifically it was the, the place where God lived in the temple of God on the mountain of Jerusalem. All the, the hills kind of led up to Jerusalem. That that capital city, that the center of God's worship, still lies in ruins a hundred years after the Babylonians destroyed it. It still lies completely unprotected and vulnerable for attack. It's, it's on the cusp of being wiped out again by the surrounding kingdoms in that area. This news hits Nehemiah hard. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He's broken because this is not how God intended for, for Jerusalem to be. Jerusalem was supposed to reflect God's glory to the world. It was supposed to be a shining example, a city on a hill that showed the world how great our God actually is. So he's weeping, he's mourning, and he does what we all should do when we are broken and when we are mourning. He turns to the only one who can actually do something about it. Look at verse 5. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. You see the greatness of our God over and over again in these passages, don't you? 
Our God is great. We tend to forget the greatness of our God. There's so many other things that compete for greatness in this world, but nothing can match the majesty of God. Everything else in this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. So he, he says, oh Lord, you see Lord in your Bible? Is it in all caps? You know that whenever you see Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, the, the word there is actually the sacred name of God that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus 3. When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Who are you? What's your name? God says, I am who I am. Yahweh. Yahweh is his sacred name. And out of respect for how holy that name is, the Bible just translates it as Lord. You know, Jewish people, when they read these texts, they have the word Y-H-W-H there, but they don't say it. They say Adonai, which means Lord, out of respect for the sacred name of God. That's what's happening here. Oh, Lord God of heaven, the true God, the one God who made heaven and earth. He says, this is Yahweh, Jehovah God, that he's addressing here. He's the one who keeps covenant, keep reading, and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember last week we read Romans 8.28. A lot of people don't finish Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. Is that, is that all it says? All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is different for people of God. This is different for God's children, for those who are part of God's family. It says here, he keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Then in verse six, let your ear, O God, be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Let your ear be attentive, O God. Hear our prayer. That's one of the themes of Ezra and Nehemiah. God hears prayer. He pays attention to his children when we call out to him. That's, that's kind of what walking by faith, you know, the, the, the Christian life is to be lived by faith, not by sight, right? And that's what it's all about. Trusting fully that the God of the universe, the one true God, hears us that he pays attention to us, that he's eager to commune with us, that he wants to, to have a relationship with us, that he's a personal God who hears us when we pray. That's a, a key theme all throughout Nehemiah. So I was so glad to hear our deacons in the last deacons meeting. We, we were talking about making some changes, of course, and, and they said, we need to pray about this. Several deacons reiterated, we need to seek the Lord's will through prayer on this. I was, I was so pleased to hear the, the spiritual nature, instead of just discussing, discussing the ABCs of the finances or whatever, they were like, let's prayerfully consider these things. Those are the kind of people we have leading this church. It's fantastic. So we must commune with the Holy Spirit through prayer if we are going to follow his lead. If we're not led by the Holy Spirit, then what else do we have? We must follow his lead by praying and understanding what he's doing. And the attitude with which Nehemiah comes in prayer is important too. He doesn't come before God saying, look God, I'm in church every Sunday. I, I even tithe every now and then, you know. I, I've been pretty good. I, don't, I haven't killed anybody, you know. I haven't dealt drugs or anything. So God, it's time for you to pay up. God, I deserve 
better. God, I, I need you, know, you to do this because I deserve it. That's not what he's saying. He comes broken over the sin of his people and his own sin as well, the sin of his family even. He comes in contrition. Look at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you, and we have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost, uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You know, as I, as I was reading through Nehemiah this week, I, I kept noticing the word hand showed up several times throughout this book. I, I looked it up. It shows up 18 times, the word hand, in what really is a relatively short book. What is, what is Nehemiah telling us about the hands of God in this book? We'll, we'll return to that theme in a minute. Let's look at verse 11. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king Artaxerxes. He knew what he was about to do with the king. You know, and I love the prayers of Nehemiah that permeate this entire book. All throughout Nehemiah, he's, he'll be in the middle of a story and then he just breaks off into prayer. He just starts praying immediately because he, he lives a life by prayer. Nehemiah is a hero not because of how strong and capable he is, not because of his success in building the walls, but he's a hero because he lives by faith and not by sight. He's a man of prayer, of constant prayer. This is what it means to pray continually, 1 Thessalonians 5, right? To be praying continually. You'll see that as you read through Nehemiah over and over again. He just breaks into spontaneous prayer. And I hear people often ask, why is it that the, that the biblical writers, you know, the psalmist and, and Nehemiah and others, say things to God like, God, remember, verse 8 here, he says, remember the word that you commanded. Why do we have to remind God of things? And, and go further with that. Why do you have to ask God to hear things? Doesn't God hear everything? Well, here's a, a deep reality regarding prayer that we all need to understand. Prayer doesn't change God, right? God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But prayer drastically, drastically changes us. When we pray, it aligns us with the will of God. When we pray, we connect to God's heart. Our hearts become conformed to God's heart. Our desires fall in line with God's desires. When we, when we pray things like, oh God, remember this, we are really reminding ourselves. We're proclaiming and reclaiming the, the truths of the promises of God. We're preaching God's promises to our own souls that desperately need to hear them. God doesn't need reminding, but we do. And that's one way in which we remind ourselves. When we pray things like, God, hear our prayer, what we're doing is actually telling ourselves to listen more closely. That's what it's, it's changing us when we pray, not God's heart. So prayer matters. 
Prayer is powerful. Prayer is important. And we need to be a praying church or else we will not know what the Holy Spirit is up to. <clears throat> so what happens next? Chapter 2. Keep reading. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, that's his job, I took up the wine <clears throat> and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, so I thought. I thought I was hiding it pretty good. In verse 2, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. And then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins? <coughs> Excuse me. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I love that. When the king asked him a question, instead of just blurting something out, he says a little silent prayer. He gathers his thoughts. I think about how many times I've answered someone hastily without even thinking sometimes, much less without praying. What if we prayed before we spoke? Wow. Could you imagine? I'm going to make it my goal to pray before I answer someone this week. Maybe we should all try that. I think it would change our lives. So he prays a little prayer, and then he, uh, he says to the king in verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? I love this too. The king just kind of looks over at his wife and they kind of you know, exchange a knowing glance as husbands and wives do. And he says, okay, when are you coming back? How long are you going to be gone? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. But now Nehemiah is emboldened. He's not just going to stop at permission. He's going to go further. Keep reading. Verse 7, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted to me all that I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The king gives Nehemiah everything that he asked for. Why? Because God's good hand was on him. The, the first time that the word hand was used in, in chapter 1, it, it was about Nehemiah proclaiming God's power. God's strong hand that is mighty to save. God's, God's powerful hand that can redeem us from the pit of hell. Now he's saying that God's good hand was on him. Here's a key question for you today. Do you believe that God is both strong and mighty to save and completely powerful and completely sovereign and in control of every molecule of the universe and the multiverse or whatever else is out there? We've got a lot of science people that know more about this than I do. And do you also believe that God is good, that God wants the best for the world, that God is loving, that God is love? That his very nature is agape love. There's a lot of skeptics in our world today that, that, that refuse to believe that God is both fully strong and powerful and in control and that he's good. They say, well, why do earthquakes happen? Why do natural disasters happen? Why is there cancer if God is fully in control 
and fully good. And to that, we as Christians reply, we don't see the big picture. God is God. We are not. Like Job, who are we to question the Almighty God? God sees in whole, and we see but a tiny part. But we believe and we proclaim, as all Christians have always proclaimed, that God is both sovereign and good. That one of his hands is strong and powerful and mighty to save as well as to punish sin and wickedness and evil. But his other hand is also good to build up, to nurture, to love. That both of those are true about our God. We need to hold on to that truth as God's people this morning. God's people have always believed that. These two hands are at work all throughout the book of Nehemiah. When he arrives in Jerusalem, it's, it's even worse than he thought when he gets there. The surrounding kings of the, the Samaritan kingdom and the Ammonite kingdom are plotting against Jerusalem. They're mad that, that a group has come that dares, it says, to, to seek the welfare of the city. The word is shalom. They, they, they dare to seek the peace and the prosperity and the flourishing of Jerusalem again. They say, Jerusalem's time's over. We're not going to allow you to to build it back up again, to seek the shalom of the city. But Nehemiah secretly goes out at night and he inspects all the walls and all the gates of Jerusalem when no one's watching. And then finally, when he's ready, he gathers all the officials and all the Jewish leaders and all the people who are there to help build the walls. And he says to them this in verse 17. Then I said to them, chapter 2, 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. You know, I, I love to read Tom Rainer's blog post. He's the president of Lifeway Christian Resources here in Nashville. And he says 200 Baptist churches close their doors forever every week in America. 200 churches, Southern Baptist churches, that die every week in this country. Isn't that sad? If you drive down Charlotte Pike, you see all these former churches that are now a theater. Uh, they're really cool. I mean, like, there's, you know, there's a neat restaurant that's in one, but there's no worship of God happening in those places anymore. Tom Rainer says, we need to see the reality that we're in. Do you see the trouble we're in? That's what he says, the first thing. You see the trouble we're in. Our culture is changing drastically, isn't it? Baptist churches aren't doing well. <laughs> Mainline churches aren't doing well. You know, older congregations are not doing well in this country. That's the reality that we're in. Let's, let's call it what it is. There is much work to be done here in Woodmont and around the world as well. But specifically, here in this church, do you see the trouble we're in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. We're not quite there yet, but... Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God <clears throat> that, <clears throat> excuse me, that had been upon me for good <clears throat> and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. I love this book. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work for the good work. Nehemiah says to them, it's not my intention, it's not my motive that counts. The good hand of God is on me. I've, I've found favor every step of the way because God wants to do a good work through this place and in this place. I think that's true 
for Woodmont as well, that God wants to do a good work here. <clears throat> we need to seek his good hand. <clears throat> I'm fine. I really am fine. <laughs> and all God's people said, amen. And they got to work. Thank you. Have you drank out of that? I'm okay. We're friends, right? We're close. There's not lipstick all over or anything, is there? The people said amen, and they got to work. The first thing they said is, let us rise up. They got off the couch. That's, that's, part of, that's half the battle, isn't it, sometimes? Those of you who've ever tried to run a marathon or, or even just tried to lose some weight, just getting off the couch is half the battle, right? Just showing up. Just, just getting up and off the couch and off the sidelines and into the game is half the battle. They say, let's do this. Let us together rise up. And then the second thing is they say, let us build something that lasts, something that's good, something that matters for generations to come after us. I love that. Let us rise up and build. They, they, they got to work establishing this, this city that would last. In order to do it, it says they had to strengthen their hands. God's good hand was on them and had inspired them to strengthen their hands. You know, I, I've never really been good with my hands. Um, you know, when Morgan and I got married, Morgan's dad is very handy. He like, you know, his brakes squeak and he's like, oh, I'll just get under my truck and, you know, fix my brakes, that kind of thing. I, I'm not like that. Um, I, I admire people who are very handy. You know, Ron Landis is always saying, I, I'm good with my hands. That, you know, I don't want to, you know, teach a class or anything, but I'm good with my hands. And, and he, is, he is gifted with his hands. And one staff meeting a few months ago, I was bemoaning again this, this sign that was over a closet in the conference room on that hallway where the offices are. I think it was supposed to be WMU Storage, Women's Missionary Union Storage, but the sign said WMV. I think they had mistaken the sign. I think it had been there for 40 years or at least since that building was built. And we all kind of, you know, bemoaned it and made fun of it kind of thing. And Ron just says, that's enough. And he gets up in the middle of staff meeting, he whips out his you know, knife pocket tool thing and just pops that thing off, done. No more, no more whining about it, no more complaining about it. He took his hands and he fixed it. it. It doesn't do any good to talk about it, right? It doesn't do any good to whine about it or make fun of it. What matters is action. What matters is doing it with your hands, making a difference. Ron is someone who makes things happen here. He, he gets things done with his hands. Nehemiah is a handy guy. He gets stuff done over and over again throughout this book. I wish I had time to preach through the whole thing, but I, I, I want to close with just two more highlights from this book. You know, the opposing kingdoms of Israel are plotting to attack them while they're rebuilding the walls. They're vulnerable. They're, they're out there with trowels and hammers. We can go and attack them. So Nehemiah hears about this rumor that they're going to attack, so he prays that God would judge their enemies with his strong hand, that he would punish the sin of the surrounding kingdoms, and the Israelites devise a plan to stop the enemies from attacking them. Look at chapter 4, verse 15 through 17. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, remember, God frustrated their plan. We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. One good hand to build up the wall, one strong hand to defend it. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work 
with one hand building and with one hand on their weapon. One hand held the weapon, one hand built. One good productive hand working to build something good and lasting, to nurture, to build it up. Another hand working to defend it, to fight against what is evil and wrong. Our hands should resemble God's strong and good hands as well when we engage in His work. God's work can only be accomplished with a strong hand and a good hand. But then later, the king of Samaria in chapter 6, this is a guy named Sanballat. You know, historians have talked about this guy. He starts sending Nehemiah hate mail. Look at chapter 6, verse 5. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, Nehemiah sends to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. I love Nehemiah. Love this guy. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Another prayer, a spontaneous prayer. They thought that our hands would get too weak for the work, but now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Isn't that beautiful? That prayer of, O oh God, strengthen my hands to be like yours so that we can accomplish the work that you have for us to be done. I remember reading this for the first time, really understanding it when I was working camp at Cross Point. Anybody remember Cross Point, Christian sports camps? I love, did you go? Excellent. I loved Cross Point. It was a, a Christian sports camp all over the nation. Lifeway put it on. It was 2002. I was a sophomore in college, and I was probably, you know, 6'1", 170 pounds. At the end of the summer, I was 150 pounds. I, it was one of the hardest physical uh, grueling summers of my life. It was incredibly, we worked from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. six days a week. It was, we were in uh, Kentucky in the middle of July, early August. It was brutally hot. Uh, the, you know, we're, we're fourth through eighth graders. They're just all over you. We were in the pool playing with them and throwing them. And I was teaching tennis. I was leading worship. I was leading a Bible study all throughout that, that week. For, for 10 weeks plus one week of training in the summer, by week three, I said, I, I'm not going to physically survive. I, I, I had to skip dinner to go set up worship a lot of times. I said, God, I'm, I'm going to die if I, if I do this for seven more weeks. I don't know what to do. And I read this passage, oh God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. And that became my mantra throughout the whole summer. Strengthen my hands, God. Let me be diligent for the work that you have for me to do. And, and it was amazing. I've never felt that kind of physical strength and energy before. And you know I have a lot of energy. It was incredible how the Lord provided, how he strengthened my hands for the work that he had for me to do. And we saw lives changed. We saw kids come to know Jesus Christ as Lord for the first time. We saw kids really understand the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins. We saw kids who were set on a trajectory that would change the world. I'm convinced of that. Because God did the work through us. 
and he strengthened my hands. And what, I was a very naive 20-year-old and, and very uh, you know, tired and weary, but God did the most work through me when I was at my weakest, at my most vulnerable. You may feel like you have nothing to offer today. Maybe you find yourself in a season of weakness where your hands are, are weak for the work that's ahead of you. Maybe you feel like you won't survive another month of whatever you're going through. Or maybe you won't survive another week, or another day even, you feel like. There's much work for us to do here at Woodmont too, isn't there? The reality is that there are walls that need to be built. And, and we must have our hands ready to both build something good that lasts for generations after us, and also a strong hand ready to push back against the pervasive evil in our fallen world that exists. This is a prayer for all of us to pray today. Oh God, strengthen our hands. We want to accomplish your work. We want to rise up and let us build something. This work of God is only accomplished through his people by continual prayer, like Nehemiah, constantly seeking what the Holy Spirit is up to. Humbly acknowledging our own sins. Woodmont's not been a perfect place, have we? We all have our sins that we, we come to God honestly saying, God, we're broken. God, we need you. Our strength isn't going to do it. We need your strength, oh God. In order for our hands to be strong for the work, we, we have to rely on both of God's hands working in us and through us to accomplish the work that he has. Then we will see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll see the kingdom of God breaking into our fallen community in Green Hills, in Nashville, in Tennessee, in America, in the world. We'll see God's will and reign and rule happening around us, in us and through us, through the work of God's good and strong hands. We'll see cities rebuilt. God's in the business of resurrection, right? He raises the dead. He raises cities from ruins, from ashes. He gives beauty and he gives goodness and life and love and hope. All by his grace and all for his glory. Let us pray.